Welcome to the preaching and teaching ministry of Mary and Oaks Assembly of God in Ocala, Florida. We invite you to open your Bible as we join Pastor Tim McIntyre for today's message for Bible study. The philosophy of the world, it's on your notes, the philosophy of the world is my way is better than God's way. My way is better than God's way. My plan is better than God's plan. My idea, my solution, I can come up with something better than God can come up with. Why do people feel that way? They're always in a rush? Okay, so they want it now, and if it's something God says they should wait for, it's like, I don't want to wait for it. I want it now. Okay. What are some other reasons why people in the world, and we as Christians wrestle with it too, feel that my way is better than God's way? Katie. Selfishness. Selfishness. All right. Why else? Amanda. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, waiting on God and you don't see him working and it's like, I'm ready, you know. <laughs> okay, you can't see what God's doing. Yeah, Chris. What? Pride. Okay, pride. And I think so many times people have this idea that God's just out there to kill our fun. You know? And, and, and the thing is, is that sin is fun. I've said this before, but I've heard a guy preach. He says, if sin is not fun, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> but the problem is that even though sin is fun, there's pleasure in sin for a season, it always comes back to bite you. You know, the consequences, the, you know, the things that come out of it, and, and it just shows that God really knows what he's talking about. And granted, there's a lot of people that have been involved in sin, and they don't seem to have any negative consequences, maybe not even up until the day they die, but the negative consequences are there. And sometimes it's not even in their own life, it's in other people's lives, and that kind of thing. Now, do you agree that our way is better than God's way? No. But we live like it sometimes, don't we? You know, I'm not going to ask you to give a testimony, but if we thought real hard, we could probably think of something that we did this week that's like, that really wasn't God's way to do it, but I did it anyway. Right? We wrestle with that. We wrestle with that. A couple of introductory thoughts before we get into the story of Peter. Um, I almost didn't put this this way, but then I got to thinking, and I thought, you know, I think that is true. Number one, this idea is the root of all the problems in the world. I almost changed that. I almost said... This idea is the root of most of the problems in the world. But if you think about it, pretty much every problem in the world can be traced back to people. I'm talking about problems with people. It can be traced back to God says this, but I'm going to do this. You know? It starts all the way back with Adam and Eve. Genesis chapter 3, 1 to 7. You can read that later. But, you know, God had given them wonderful opportunity. You know, Adam and Eve in the garden... And a wonderful place to live, wonderful place to work. Work was a joy. They had personal fellowship with God. He says, you can eat anything you want except for this tree here, you know. He had one thing, you know. And the devil comes and says, is it true you can't eat from these trees? And and he says, no, no, just this one. And he says, anyway, he has this whole conversation. And he basically convinces Eve that God doesn't know what's best. And that her way is better than God's way. And so that's how the whole sin thing started. 
And if you look all through history, biblical history, the stories in the Bible, but even history, history, you can see this repeated over and over and over and over and over again. When people choose to go their own way and totally reject what God has said is the best way to do things, it causes all kinds of problems for individuals, for families, for nations at times. Number two, um, this idea is at the root of all the problems in your life. Chances are, okay? This idea, um, you know, this is the root of temptation. God says, don't do this or whatever, and the devil comes to us like he did to Eve. And, um, and says, you know what? God says don't do this, but you really ought to. Or God says do this, but you really shouldn't. You know, and we give in to that say, okay, well, my way. Um, I guess maybe it is better than God's. And so we give into it. We get involved in sin. There's all kinds of consequences. Every area of life is affected by that. If you were to look back at your greatest regrets, it could be that it may be related to a time that you said, yeah, I'm going to do it my way. I know Frank Sinatra was really famous for that song, I did it my way. You know, you know, you know that's a real majestic, but that's one of the most ungodly songs there is. If, if it's taken in that context, but anyway... Um, yeah, uh, whether it's something to do with our character, our relationships, our sexuality, our finances, if we choose to do it our way, contrary to what God has said is the best way to do it, chances are that's the root of some of our greatest regrets. But the opposite is probably true, too. It's probably some of the greatest joys and successes we have in life. If we look back, we see, you know, I did it the right way. You know, I did it the right way. Okay. We're going to see this illustrated in our story today, um, uh, the situation with Peter and something he says to Jesus and what he meant by it. And Jesus uses it, uses it as an illustration or a lesson about what it means to really be a follower of him. Okay? And it applies to every area of life. So the background of our story, we're going to be looking at Matthew 16, verses 21 to 28. And the background is the lesson from last week. I mean, this goes right on the tail end of last week's lesson. You know, last week's lesson, Jesus and the disciples went off for a retreat. I mean, they got out of Israel. He went about as far away as he ever went in his whole life. Um, I think it was 50, 60, 70 miles. I can't remember. And uh, they're off, and he says, who do people say that I am? And they gave him all these different things that people said. Well, maybe you're Elijah. Maybe you're some other prophet. Maybe you're John the Baptist raised from the dead or, or whatever. He says, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter speaks up and says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, you know what? You're right. And you didn't come up with that on your own. God helped you to realize that. And he blessed you. He says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Um, God's revealed that to you. And he talked about the whole thing about upon this rock, I'll build my church. We discussed all that last week. And he says, the gates of hell won't prevail against it. And you're going to have power and authority to do great things for God. So Peter had one of his great moments. Probably the greatest positive moment he's known for. This great statement, this great confession, this great declaration that Jesus truly is the Messiah. But one thing we didn't talk about last week, it was right at the end of the, ver- uh, end of the, 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 the um, passage, verse 20. We're going to back up from where we're going to start today. And it says, then Jesus strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Tell no one that he was the Messiah. So let's use that the basis is the base because it really is the background to our story today and gives it meaning. Why did Jesus tell people? I mean, why did Jesus tell the disciples not to tell people he was the Messiah? 
I mean, people have been asking this all along. Could this be the Messiah? Could this be the Messiah? Jesus never will come out and say that. The disciples are wondering, could Jesus be the Messiah? Now Jesus actually comes out and makes it clear. I am the Messiah. So why does he tell the disciples not to tell anybody? It's not time yet? Why is it not time yet? To what? Okay. So there's the right time for different revelations, different truths. So when would be the right time for the Jewish people to know that Jesus is the Messiah? <laughs> You're like, let her answer it. <laughs> yeah, he always told the truth about everything yes. he said. You still didn't answer my question. But that's okay. okay. What did you say, Sharon? <laughs> After the resurrection. So... And John, you had your hand up. Go ahead. Well, I was thinking maybe he wanted individuals' revelation of who he was. That's a good thought. So that each person could have their own personal revelation as to who he was. Okay? Chris? Okay, so it could have stirred up the opposition even more. I mean, the opposition is already being stirred up, but it could have caused the opposition perhaps to grab him and want to kill him before his time. That's a good thought. Did somebody have... Oh, Tim, you said something earlier and I never came back to you. What did you say? It wasn't the right time. Okay. Yeah, it wasn't the right time. You know, there are at least two instances in Scripture that I can remember where Jesus actually did let somebody, beside the disciples, know that he was the Messiah. There was the woman at the well, and there was the lady that was also outside the country when they went away for a different retreat, and she had the demon-possessed daughter, and she came and said, hey, can you cast the demon? And she says, you know, you're not among the Jewish people, so why give the bread to the dogs? And she said, well, even the dogs get the crumbs. And he said, man, because of your great faith, you know, the demon's cast out. You know, but um, uh, to that one, it became very evident she was, he was the Messiah. So I thought, I, did I send another hand over here? Norris. Okay. So that's, that's kind of going the opposite direction from what Chris said. Very good idea that if everybody would have known he was the Messiah for sure and he recognized it, that they'd have been so behind him. It would have been much harder for people, for God's plan to be fulfilled, to have him killed. You know, that's actually the root of the main reason, I think, that Jesus told them not to tell anybody. Okay, we've talked about this before, but maybe, maybe you remember, maybe you won't. Everybody's looking for the Messiah, like Norris just said. Everybody's looking for the Messiah. Why? What did they think the Messiah was going to do? Freedom from the Romans. What, is that what everybody said? Anything else? Okay. You know, the Messiah is the one that God has promised is going to come. He's going to be a king from the line of David. He's going to set up God's kingdom. He's going to bring about the end of injustice. He's going to bring peace, prosperity. He's going to make everything right that's wrong and all that kind of stuff. And is, is Jesus going to do that? Yes. Why didn't he do it when he came the first time? Well, quote it for us. Why did he... Yes. See, the Messiah's work is a two-stage process. We've talked about this a lot lately. It's come up on Sunday mornings and on Wednesday nights, too. Um, Everything that they were hoping for is true, the Messiah. But there's these two different pictures of the Messiah given in the Old Testament. One was the conquering king that's going to get rid of all the enemies and bring peace and prosperity and justice. The other one is this Messiah that's going to suffer, you know, on behalf of the people as he's carrying out God's plan. Well, you know, which one would you rather have? If you were in the Ukraine right now and you had a promise that this guy is going to come, at some point he's going to kick out the Russians. But 
Also, he may die in the process because he's got to take care of some other things. Which one do you want? Let's get the one that's going to kick out the Russians, right? Yeah. And so that's why Jesus didn't want them sharing he's the Messiah because he knew that everybody would latch on to the idea that they already believed and were already hoping for. And as Nora said, they would try to make him king. And, all, and it would totally derail, could derail. I mean, nothing can totally derail God's plans. But that's why, because Jesus said, don't tell anybody. All right. But it could really make a mess of things. All right. So the disciples and everybody else are looking for this Messiah that's going to get rid of the Romans and bring in David's kingdom and do all these wonderful things. Okay. And Jesus just admitted to being that guy. So how do you think that made the disciples feel? They're excited, right? They're excited. Jesus is the Messiah. And that's where all these arguments we read about in Scripture come from. Well, I'm the most important one. No, I'm the most important one. I'm going to be at his right hand, which is the place of authority and power. No, I am. Well, I'll be on his left hand. You know, who's the greatest in the kingdom of God? Because Jesus is getting ready to set up God's kingdom. That's what they're thinking. They're excited. Tim, did you say something? Were you getting ready to? I'm not sure what the question is you're asking. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Don't tell. Yeah. Well, it's interesting when you're talking about that uh, God said that from heaven um, at his baptism about this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. I just preached on that on Sunday. I didn't talk about it Sunday because it wasn't really pertinent to all the things I felt like God laid in my heart. But the Bible scholars are in, um, in, um, What's the word I want to say? They're not real sure how many people heard God say that. You know, because whenever God spoke from heaven in other times, it always mentions that, but it doesn't that time. So it could be that was a private moment with Jesus, and he shared it with the disciples, but we don't know. But anyway, you know, even God making that statement at Jesus' baptism is signifying, yes, he's the coming king, but he's also the suffering uh, servant. Yeah, John. Yeah, he, you know, like you said, the Gospel of John talks a lot about how Jesus said, I came from the Father, I'm doing the Father's will, go to carry his plan. But he doesn't ever really come out and say, you know, I think what it, it goes back to what somebody else said earlier. Well, what you said earlier about how he wanted each person to have to wrestle with it for themselves and come to their own conclusion. Okay, okay. So the context is Simon made this statement. You're the Messiah. Jesus says, yes, I am. They're excited. Yay. God's kingdom is getting ready to break into history. Immediately following that is where we pick up where we're at tonight. Okay. Verse 21. From this time, from that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And on the third day, be raised. So... In the disciples' mind, there's a big conflict. Wait a minute. Jesus just said he's the Messiah. That means he's going to set up God's kingdom. That means he's going to get rid of the Romans. That means he's going to deal with all this hypocrisy in the religious traditions. You know, that means that he's going to be in charge. What do you mean he's talking about that he's going to go and be mistreated and the religious leaders are going to reject him and he's going to be killed? Okay? And so that leads to what Peter says in verse 22. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you're a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So in these uh, three verses, we see Peter's example on your note sheet there. 
But as we've mentioned many times, the, the whole contradiction of saying no, Lord, it's like you don't say no to the Lord. You know, if you if you can honestly say no to him, he's not your Lord. If he's your Lord, you don't ever say no. All right. He's in charge. So why did Peter say this? What? I did it my way. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I mean, think about it. why did Peter? I mean, did Peter say this deliberately, trying to sidetrack him? No. Did Peter do this deliberately because he wanted to speak for Satan? No. By the way, this does not mean he was demon possessed or Satan possessed. We'll get to that in a moment. So, why did Peter say this? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, again, everything we've talked to up, up to this point, that's why he made so much a big deal of it. All their preconceived ideas. Jesus is setting up the kingdom. Wait a minute. He can't set up his kingdom. He's going to die. It, when he says, no, Lord, I mean, he doesn't say those words exactly, but pretty much far be it from you. He rebukes him. Far be it from you, Lord. He's basically saying, Lord, I don't think you understand. <laughs> you don't understand. You're the Messiah. You just said you're the Messiah. The Messiah is going to do this. And the Messiah is going to do that. And that doesn't involve dying. Okay. Can you imagine telling God he just doesn't understand? But we do it, don't we? Maybe not in those words. It's like, God, you don't understand my situation. Why haven't you done something different? I mean, if you understood my situation, you would have acted by now. If you understood my situation, you would have changed that by now, right? So you see, this really relates to us. So anyway, but think of it this way. Peter says this with mixed motives. I think he had two main motives. And I'm not trying to psychoanalyze and it's not revealed in Scripture, but I think... One of them is, okay, you just said you're the Messiah. We're all excited about this. This is not what I think the Messiah is supposed to do. He's not supposed to die. But I think the second thing is, is he really loves Jesus. Yes. And Jesus really loves him. I mean, they're tight. they they got a great relationship. And it's like, you die? No, that can't. That, that does not need to happen. I mean, he said that. So, I mean, he, he had that attitude all the way through. They're in the garden, and he's being arrested. And he peer, peels out that sword, you know, pulls out that sword. And he takes that mighty swing and knocks off the guy's ear, you know. And uh, he was not much of a swordsman. But uh, anyway, on your note sheet, I have this. Peter the Rock had become a stumbling block because he promoted his way rather than God's way. You know, if he really believed that Jesus was who Jesus just said he was, it'd be like, wait a minute. Jesus should know what he's talking about. But that doesn't fit my way. Okay. And um, it wasn't a deliberate attempt to lead him astray, but it was certainly instigated by Satan as a temptation. And that's why Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. He wasn't talking specifically to Peter as a person who had chosen to be used by Satan. He was talking to Peter as someone who was speaking the words that Satan would speak. You see, this was another opportunity for temptation for Jesus. This Sunday in the Gospel of Luke, you know, in the sermon series we're doing, we're going to deal with Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. And this was one of the temptations that Satan brought to him. You can have the crown without the cross. Remember, one of the temptations was, you know what, if you'll just bow down and worship me and serve me, I'll make you the king of the world. You know, and you don't have to go to the cross. I mean, he doesn't say that in the temptation story, but that basically is the idea. You know, and, and Jesus was tempted with that. Here's the exact same temptation. You don't have to go to the cross. And Jesus still wrestles with it at the end of his life, in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? He knows he's going to the cross. He's, God, if there's some other way. And don't you know that the, the story doesn't say that, but Satan was there saying, you're right, Jesus, there is another way. You know? you know, think about it when he's on the cross and the religious leaders and all the people are mocking him, 
saying if he really was the Son of God and the Messiah, then he could save himself. Don't you think it was a temptation to say, yeah, I could, I think I might. I mean, he wouldn't do that. He's God. He had determined that he was going to go through with it, and he did. But it was still something that he was tempted with, probably one of the biggest temptations he had in his entire time here. He knew he was going to the cross, and there's not anybody that I, would, that I know of that would ever look forward to a cross, including Jesus. But, you know, this temptation was probably extra hard for Jesus because it came from somebody who loved him, and he loved. Now, does that ever happen to us? Do, do we ever have temptations that come our way because of people that love us? Are we ever tempted to do it our way instead of God's way because of the influence of people that love us? Sure. You know, I can think of some ways that have to do with ministry. I, I've known, um, not a lot, but I've known some people and heard of some people that uh, their children feel a call to ministry or to go to missions or something. The parents, no, you don't want to do that. That's not a good occupation. I love you. And, and not being trying to be mean or whatever. It's just like, you'll never make enough money doing that. You'll never do this. You'll never do that. You know, why don't you get involved in business? Why don't you do this? Why don't you follow in your father's footsteps? Whatever it might be, you know. Um, Sure, because our people, because our families love us, there are sometimes things. There are sometimes they want things for us that are not part of God's plan for us. And even in the sense that part of God's plan for us is that we go through difficult things, so we can learn and grow. But don't we try to keep our kids and the people we love from having to go through difficult things? So we can kind of understand that. But once again, this story gives us hope. Um, Peter's example, because. You know, he got it right so many times, you know, walking on the water, saying you're the Messiah, and all that kind of stuff, and then get it wrong. And sometimes right next to each other, he's walking on the water, great step of faith, and then boom, he's sinking within less than a minute. You know, here he's saying, you're the Christ. God revealed that to you. And then he's immediately saying, no, Lord. Um, But you know what? Again, Jesus never gave up on him because his heart was in the right place. He always repented. So, something for us to think about. If you've blown it recently, (laughs) just ask for forgiveness and get back on track. All right? So, as we go on with this story, we see the root problem is in verse 23. It's a wrong mindset. When when, uh, Jesus turned to Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. Oh, by the way, a little side issue here. Some Bible scholars say that part of what Jesus is saying is that the disciples' place was behind their teacher because they would follow their teacher. That in the midst of this, Jesus may also be communicating, Peter, you stepped out of your place. Get back in your place. Get back to where you're following me instead of listening to yourself, okay? But anyway, um, uh, he says, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. That word hindrance is stumbling block. That's why I said that the rock became a stumbling rock, stumbling block. He says, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. He says, you're not thinking the way God wants you to think. You're thinking the way a human being would think without God. One translation puts it this way. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Which is another way of saying, my way is better than God's way. The whole focus of our lesson tonight, okay? Um, Peter had just spoken what God had revealed to him about Jesus being the Messiah, but now he's speaking Uh, according to his own desires. And that is an easy trap to fall into. Why is it so easy for us to fall into the trap of just speaking what we feel and what we want instead of what God says? Because what? Yes, our flesh is always in conflict with our spirit, right? And with the spirit, our spirit and the spirit. 
You know, our flesh is strong, right? The flesh being that part of us that pulls us to do what's wrong, you know, the fallen sinful human nature. Why else is it easy to fall into this trap of wanting to pay more attention to our plan rather than God's plan? What? Because it's easier. It's easier, and as we said a little bit earlier, in the short term, it's a lot more fun sometimes, right? Yeah. On your note sheet, I give you a couple of extra uh, reasons why. The first bullet point there is God's way is sometimes hard to understand. Have you ever wrestled with, well, what does God want in this situation? You know? And sometimes we've got to put forth an effort to figure out what God wants. I don't want to put forth that effort. I'll just do what comes natural. Isaiah 55, verses 8 to 9, God even recognizes that. He says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For the heavens, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Especially when we're praying for something. It's like, it's so obvious, it's so logical. God, if you were paying attention, this is what you would do. But he's not. And it's because he knows a whole lot more than we do. He knows if we go through this difficult thing that we think he should eliminate right now, there's going to be good results on the other side if we'll stay faithful. Okay, So God's way is sometimes hard to understand. Um, and then the next one is what kind of leads to what Amanda had said there. God's way is hard to live out. How many of you discovered that the way God says to do things is not necessarily the easiest way to do it? And going with the same theme we've already talked about, sometimes it's not the most fun way to do it either. But it's always worth it. You know, our flesh fights against it, like Sharon said. You know, we don't want it. It's hard. We're so used to doing things our way. So what's the solution on your note sheet number three? The solution is to choose to follow Jesus. And so that's what I said earlier in the introduction. God, Jesus uses this situation to be a training time for his disciples, of what it really means to follow him. So picking up right there from after he said, you're not setting your mind on the things of God but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. He says, basically, you know that I'm the Messiah. I've told you it's not what you expect. But if you still want to follow me, this is what you need to do. And he told them three things. Uh, We've heard them before. They're very basic Letter A, he says, you must deny yourself. What does it mean to deny yourself? Say no to yourself. Very basic, right? Okay, say no to yourself uh, in what kind of a context? You're reaching for that extra cookie and say, no, don't take that cookie. (laughs) I mean, that is an example, right? Why would we ever need to say no to ourselves? Because we want something and there's some reason why we shouldn't have it, right? Yeah, that's, that's what denying yourself, it means to say no to yourself. But what would be the reason why we would want to say no to ourselves? I mean, don't we like to say yes to ourselves a whole lot more? So, what'd you say? Because Okay, so we can choose to say no to ourselves because what we desire, what we want is not biblical, it's not godly, it's not right. Okay. What are some, what are some even non-spiritual things that we're willing to say no to ourselves for? What? Matt? Logic? Okay, what do you mean by that? Okay, so in other words, even though we feel we should do this because of logic and, and intelligence, it's like that's not the best thing to do. All right, so we tell, we tell ourselves no because even though we feel one way, we know it's not the right thing or the best thing for us. Okay? 
What are some other situations or whatever in which um, um, we might deny ourselves? How about if we need to get in better shape? <laughs> I like the little Snickers. You know, it changes maybe the way we eat. Uh, it changes our, you know, maybe a pattern of exercise. Right? We deny ourselves. We say, no, no, don't eat that extra cookie. Don't eat the first cookie. You <laughs> don't, whatever, you know. Don't sleep in. Get up and go out and do whatever. Amanda. Mm-hmm. Oh, don't sleep in? Okay. It's okay to sleep in every once in a while, just so you know. <laughs> no, not while you got to go work. You know, there's all kinds of things that we'll say our, no to ourselves for. You know, just in basic relationships. How many times... If you have a relationship with somebody you really care about and you don't agree with each other, and so you say, well, I'm going to say no to myself so that the other person can have their way, you know? If it's always one-sided, that's not such a healthy thing. But I'm just saying we know what it means to say no to ourselves for something of significance. A relationship, you know, people that are involved in athletics, they've got to say no to themselves a lot. Yeah, Chris. Okay, that's a good point. Saying no to yourself many times means saying no to the devil and his temptations, which is... Part of the story, because the devil was speaking through Peter to bring that temptation to Jesus. So, um, On your note sheet, I have this. I will say no to myself and yes to God. That's what denying yourself in this context means. It's not just I'm denying myself so I can be healthier. I'm denying myself because i got to get to work and I can't sleep in. I'm denying myself because all those things could be good things. But in this context, Jesus is saying you need to be willing to say no to yourself and yes to God. If Peter had been fully aware, and he probably wasn't, but if he had been fully aware that God's plan was that Jesus was going to die and later set up the kingdom, then to deny himself would be saying, I don't want that to happen because I love Jesus. I don't want that to happen because I'm looking forward to being his right-hand man in the kingdom. But I'm going to deny myself and say yes to whatever God has. Okay. Now, this idea of saying no to myself and yes to God is just the opposite of saying my way is better than God's way because it's saying God's way is better than my way. All right, And so I'm going to live like it. And that affects every area of life. What we do as far as our morality, our character, our relationships, our sexuality, our finances, in every, con- uh, every context, you know, in school, at work, um, friendships, involvement with God's people. It's like, okay, what's God's way? What's God's way? What does God have planned for this? All right. A letter B, um, as we choose to follow Jesus, he said, you must deny yourself and take up your cross. What did he mean by that? That you have to be willing, if you're going to follow Jesus, if you're going to be, you know, be, be with him, be part of him, have a relationship with him, you need to be willing to take up your cross. What does that mean? What comes to your mind when you hear that? That you've got, you got to bear your cross. Chris? You've got to die to self. Okay. So what does that mean? You commit suicide? In a spiritual sense, maybe. You know, Paul said, I die daily. He didn't say he killed himself daily, but, you know, I think he did say something about killing the old man and he wasn't talking about his father, you know. Anyway, yeah, you know, sometimes people use this thing, well, that's just our cross to bear. And it's talking about some kind of minor problem or difficulty or a health issue or whatever. And, and I mean, that can be part of it, but, but that's actually kind of minimizing what Jesus is saying here. I mean, because we look at the cross as something symbolic. He's talking about something that's literal. He's talking about something that they faced all the time. When they went to Jerusalem, they'd see the crucified men and sometimes women on the hillside. These people have been horribly, cruelly tortured 
and hung up there to die slowly in, a, in the most horrific way possible. Okay? For them, carrying your cross meant, I'm going to die. And when people were condemned uh, to be crucified, they had to carry the cross beam from the place where they were condemned to the place they were going to be crucified. And all along the way, it's like, I'm going to die pretty soon. A horror, horrific death. And so literally what Jesus is saying is, I am willing to face shame because it was shameful. I mean, you don't ever see this in pictures, but they crucified people naked. All right? The shame, the embarrassment, it was a death only for the worst of criminals. So even if people didn't know why you were being crucified, they knew that you were the dregs of society. So when Jesus said you must be willing to take up your cross, it was basically saying, I'm willing to endure the shame, the embarrassment, the reproach, the rejection, the persecution, the pain, even death if necessary for the cause of Christ. All right. On your note sheet, I have this. I will follow Jesus no matter what it costs. Now, we're not likely to be put to death for our faith. But any cost that we must bear because we're a follower of Jesus, that's part of the cross that we have to carry. And we're fortunate that the cross is not near as big of a deal for us as it was for the, the disciples and, and a lot of Christians throughout history. The third thing on your note sheet, let us see as we follow Jesus is just that statement, follow Jesus. Uh, Jesus said, if you would come after me, let him deny himself, take him across, follow me. And, and the reason we call it following Jesus is because that's a great picture of what we're doing. We are following Jesus. All right. But what does it mean to follow Jesus? I mean, Jesus isn't physically here. We can't say, oh, he's going out the door. I'll just go right there behind him. If, if someone were to ask you, what does it mean today to follow Jesus? Tim? Follow his example. That's the second bullet point down there. <laughs> the first, I'll go ahead and give you the first. The first one is follow his teachings. You know, I'm going to follow his teachings. In other words, whatever he says, I'm going to do it. Just the opposite of the title of our lesson. Not my way, but his way. I'll follow Jesus' teachings, which, which basically means obedience. Jesus talked about this at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 to 27. That picture he gave, the illustration he gave to wrap up the Sermon on the Mount, he says, listen, the people that hear what I have to say, and they do it, or it's obedience. They're like the guy that built his house on a rock, so when the storms came, didn't have any effect on it. But he says, the people that listen to what I say, they're listening, but they don't do it. They built their house in the sand, and when the storms come, the house falls down. So following Jesus means we'll follow his teachings, and as Tim said, I will follow his example. Uh, we sit several places in Scripture where a writer will say, you need to live like Jesus lived. You need to walk like Jesus walked, which is another way of saying having the same lifestyle. John said that in 1 John 2.6. Um, Paul picked up on that idea. He said, follow me as I follow Christ. That's 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. I mean, he wouldn't put himself as his greatest example, but he's saying, if you're having a hard time figuring out how to follow Jesus, then just imitate me in any way you see that I'm imitating Jesus. All right? All right. Then on your note seat number four there, the result is eternal reward. And see, that's where the, where, where the thing is. When I have said several times tonight, if we do what God wants, if we go God's way instead of my way, it isn't easy at times. In fact, it can be painful. It can be problematic. We don't have as much fun in the short term, but it's worth it. It's worth it. Some of that rewards some of the good part of what we experience in this life, and some of it we don't until we get to heaven. 
But in our story, uh, chapter 16, verses 25 to 27, Jesus follows it up after saying, if you want to come after me, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Verse 25, for whoever would save his life will lose it. Whatever loses his life for my sake will find it. What he's saying there, if you want to live your life for yourself, you're going to end up losing everything. But if you're willing to lose whatever it takes to live the life that I have, you're going to gain everything. Okay? Verse 26, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? You know, what if you could be the richest human being in the world, have anything you want, live anywhere you want, go anywhere you want, eat anything you want, but then you end up in hell for, for, for eternity. You know? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he's done. In other words, there are consequences to our actions. There are consequences to going our way or God's way. And it's not because God's up there saying, if you don't do it right, I'm going to zap you and send you to hell forever. God's up there saying, listen, sin is rampant. If you give yourself over to it, there are consequences Some of them are in this life, some of them are eternal, and I don't want you to have to do that. But if we choose to go that way anyway, and we don't know Jesus as our Savior, we will face eternity without God. People who only live for themselves eventually lose what they work so hard to gain, and they lose eternal life. Whereas those who live for God gain eternal life, and a good life here too, for the most part. It's not perfect or problem-free, although ours is a whole lot better than a lot of people's. Okay? You know, it's not always true, but some of the most miserable people I've ever known are the people that just live for themselves. They may have a bunch of stuff. Now, I'll freely admit, there may be people that they're rich. They got a bunch of stuff. And I'm not saying rich people are ungodly because God lets some people be rich. You know, I've always said, God test me. I'll, I'll try that one. But I, <laughs> no, I just want whatever God has for me. He knows what I can take, what I can, you know, what's not going to be too much of a temptation. But, um, but you know... People, there can be people that have lots of money, lots of things, and they seem totally happy, live their whole life that way, but that's all they've got is this life. That's it. But I've known of many people that had everything in this life, and you can, if you do this research and stuff, you can find plenty of quotes from people who, through history, have made so much money and had so much stuff, and basically were willing to confess either during life or at the end of life of, it was all meaningless, you know? It just didn't really satisfy, it didn't really mean anything on the inside, Okay, whereas I've known so many people that didn't have much at all, and they were so joyful, so satisfied because of their relationship with the Lord. And that's not just because they know they're going to get great stuff in heaven, but even right here in this life, you know. Okay, so on your note sheet, I have this, what I've been saying all night long, doing things God's way will be worth it. Doing things God's way will be worth it. Verse 27, I read it a moment ago. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and he will repay each person according to what he has done. We will receive reward, you know, for the life that we've lived, for what we've done with what God's given us. Okay. All right. So anyway, as we wrap this all up, um, the concluding verse of this section, we'll go ahead and read it. Uh, It doesn't really have to do with the topic, but it says, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And uh, that's kind of his follow-up. He says, listen, you know, if you want to choose to follow me, there's great things coming. And he says, some of you, in fact, are going to see um, the Son of Man 
coming in his kingdom. And Bible scholars say, well, what is he talking about there? And Jesus doesn't make it clear. Many Bible scholars, in my own personal opinion, he's talking about the transfiguration because that's the very next thing in the story. Okay. But some other suggestions that have been given is he's talking about the resurrection, you know, and all the disciples except Judas saw that. Or the day of Pentecost, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, or the beginning of the church and it spread through the world. There's a number of things that could be uh, referred to there. Now, I got some practical application here as we wrap this up. And these are more things that we should pray and then try to live out, okay? Number one, Lord, help me know your will. If we really want to go God's way and not my way, I've got to know what God's way is. So, Lord, help me to understand your will because, as we said early in the lesson, sometimes it's hard to understand, hard to get. We need to seek it out. We need to pray about it. We need to study his word, you know, and, and just know that God doesn't want to hide his will for you, his, hide his will from you, okay? The second one is, Lord, help me to want to do your will because how many of you know that you may know what God's will is, but I don't want to do it? It's like, God, change my desires. Help me to change my desires. Help me to want to do your will. And this is a battle we all face. You can read about what Paul said about it in Romans chapter 7, verses 15 to 25. That's that passage where he says, we know what the right thing is, but we don't want to do it. You know, there's something in us that keeps pulling us to do the wrong thing. And he ends up saying, what a wretched man I am. And I'm glad he didn't stop there. He says, what's going to deliver me from this? He says, only Jesus Christ can deliver me from it. Okay, And part of that is, Lord, help me to want to do the right thing. I mean, how many times are we faced with a choice? It's like, I know what the right thing is. And Lord, I, I need to do the right thing, but I want so bad to do the wrong thing. Okay? <laughs> I read this one time. It says, sometimes we have to pray, Lord, help me to want to want to do your will. Okay? The third one, Lord, help me to do your will even when I don't want to. Okay? So that's another good thing to pray. Lord, I really don't want to do your will, but help me to do it anyway. How do we do that? We make a decision, and like Nike says, just do it, it, right? The good news is, is that God says he will give us the power we need to do the right thing. And then number four, Lord, help me to do your will no matter what it costs. Again, that's a decision, a determination. But the good thing is we can stand with each other, right? Yeah. Okay, last two things, because we have to wrap up. Two important notes. This is an ongoing process, and it's a daily choice. Okay, it isn't like we can make a decision today, I'm going to go God's way, not my way, and I'm good for the rest of my life now. Every day, got to wrestle with it again. Luke 9.23, Jesus is saying basically the same thing, but when he says take up your cross, it's take up your cross daily. It's an emphasis every day. It's a decision every day. I'm going to live for Jesus today. Uh, one of the things I pray almost every morning is, Jesus, help me to walk closely with you today. Because no matter how closely I felt like I walked with you yesterday, this is a new day. I got choices to make. I could go... Far afield, but help me to walk closely with you today. So as we wrap this up, I just want to ask you a question for you to meditate on and think about what areas have you been wrestling with doing things God's way? Areas where you may be so tempted to just want to do things your way. And then just apply what we've talked about tonight. So let's pray. Father, thank you for this time that we've had to look at your word again, the life of Peter. And, um, God, I just pray that you would help us to take what we've learned and to apply it to our lives. And, Lord, we, we in our flesh wrestle with this all the time. We wrestle with it every day, probably several times a day. Am I going to do things my way or your way? God, change our hearts because we are hopeless and helpless without you and the power of your Holy Spirit within us. God, help us to want to do your will even more than we want to do ours. Show us what your will is. 
Reveal it to us. Help us to seek it out and search it out, Lord God. Help us to want to do it. And even when we don't feel like doing it, we don't want to do it, help us to do it anyway, no matter what it would cost. And Father, I pray that in the process, people would see in us something different and would point people to you. And Father, we just thank you and praise you, Lord God, that you reward um, all the efforts that we make to live for you, to love you and to serve you. And Lord, we give you the glory and the honor in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed listening to today's message or Bible study. For more information, please contact us at area code 352-347-3001 or visit us online. If you are interested in supporting this ministry, go to our website and click on the online giving tab. Our website address is www.marionoaksag.org.